From CPR News and Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. There are some newcomers to the city. We saw a huge influx in people whose jobs went remote that could suddenly pick up and move to Grand Junction and bring their job with them. Then from Hotchkiss to Hayden, farmers and ranchers are navigating a new world. Between the pandemic and a persistent drought, they're dealing with constant uncertainty. It is impressive what lengths people will go to to try and do the right thing by the land. Plus, Colorado Mesa University gained national attention in its efforts to stay a step ahead of COVID. As students return, how will it adapt? And the musician behind this week's cover of our road trip theme. Every morning when we hit the road, staring down the barrel of another eight-hour drive to get to the next venue, we'd start it off with On the Road Again. On the road again I just can't wait to get on the road again. When your car needs too many costly repairs, or stops running, or it's just time for a new car, give the old one to CPR. It's so simple. Your car will be picked up at your convenience. When it sells, you'll get a tax receipt. The proceeds help make CPR the station you turn to for factual news and uplifting music. So let your old car make great radio happen. Get started at CPR.org. On the road again I just can't wait to get on the road again This is Colorado Matters, live in Grand Junction from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Who picks up and moves to a brand new city during a pandemic? Mariko Wilcox did. I closed on a house on uh, Monday, September 14th, which is I'm just about two weeks away from that anniversary now. Wilcox is with a national financial planning firm. She's a fourth-generation Coloradan who, until last year, worked in an office in suburban Denver. Then COVID hit, and she came west. Um, Well, the pandemic was a catalyst, and I'd been hoping and kind of more dreaming to move out here for about four to five years. And I saw my opportunity, and I just, just ran with it. Knowing she'd be working entirely from home, Wilcox had something pretty specific in mind when she started house hunting. What's very important for me is my physical environment. Like, I want to live in a place that's beautiful. I can see the Colorado River from my house on one side. I can see the Colorado National Monument from my kitchen sink. And I found a wonderful, beautiful house in a lovely neighborhood. And so... That part was really important, that the place I was going to actually work and spend all day long had to be enjoyable and beautiful, and and I accomplished that. Wilcox is on her own in Grand Junction. She doesn't have family here, and she doesn't mind working alone. When I'm working during the day, I, I'm, I have company all day long. I'm talking to people all day long, which is really what fills my cup, and that energizes me. She's a mountain biker and a Nordic skier. She's joined a swim club, a book club, and a networking group that matches longtime Grand Junction business people with newbies like her. We're all kind of in the same boat. Um, we all moved here during the pandemic. We didn't necessarily have strong ties here, and we were able to work remotely. So that's what brought us all together. And so we're actually a cohort of kind of pandemic remote workers. That networking group is called The Welcome Wagon. It's run by the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, or GJEP. I'm joined by Robin Brown, who until just recently served as the group's executive director. So people are moving to town, and that sounds good for the Grand Junction economy. 
What is going on there? 2020 was, you know, obviously everyone knows how disruptive it was to the world, but um, and it, but I think we're an example of one of those places where it wasn't all bad. And so we saw a huge influx in people whose jobs went remote that could suddenly pick up and move to Grand Junction and bring their job with them. And so it's been really exciting because we've seen huge growth in tech industry and companies that, again, used to think they had to be located in certain cities that now realize they don't and they're picking up and coming here. You know, in the beginning of in March of 2020, we got very nervous that we had undone all the good we had worked on to diversify our economy and improve our economy. We, we were kind of panicked. And then we very quickly realized the opposite happened. It just sped up our growth. And when you say that influx of remote workers was huge, what does that mean in terms of the size of your overall workforce? So the problem with remote workers is you can't count them. Um, and that's always, that's been a challenge that we have tried every which way to figure out how many are coming. And there's no, they're being counted where their headquarters are. And so there's no way that we've at least discovered and we have tried to figure out how many people are moving here. It's all anecdotal. And mostly it's coming from uh, we, the, the growth that we can see, or I guess the economic indicator that's most obvious is the pressure on our housing market. And that is, you know, that's a common thing in Colorado, but we've always had a very affordable housing market, which was a benefit of coming here. Um, and then suddenly there's increased pressure last year and our um, average home price has increased significantly. It is a matter of perspective. Locals think we're having a housing crisis. People moving in from Steamboat or Denver laugh that they think we have a housing crisis. So it's, you know, it's about perspective, but we've definitely seen pressure on our um, housing market. And then also just we keep running into people. People keep coming in our front door. I keep getting emails from people saying, I just moved here. I brought my job with me, but I want to get networked and I want to meet people. And so it's all anecdotal, but it is obvious there are a lot of remote workers here. Do you get a sense that people are moving from out of state or from elsewhere in Colorado? So all over. We've seen a lot from, um, I, I, there's a big influx from Denver. There's an interesting um, influx from the Roaring Fork Valley. We've seen a lot of Roaring Fork Valley relocations, um, a lot of California, which is not a surprise. Um, but then the other one that surprises me, I keep meeting people from Austin. And that is not a place we have targeted or seen growth from the past. But I think I, the trend among all those places is they're places that grew really fast, got pretty expensive. And so if you have the ability to leave and take your job with you to a place that's maybe still growing, um, that's that seems to be the common thread. And you said that you're seeing that put pressure on the housing market in Grand Junction. A lot of communities that we visited during this road trip have told us that housing is in short supply. It is getting unaffordable. Does bringing in more people, particularly if their incomes are relatively high, raise the threat of pricing locals out of their homes? So not yet. We don't want to be a community where we have to subsidize our average wage earners to live here. So teachers and firemen. Um, and so the city did a housing needs assessment this past year, and currently there's a citizen group working on policy recommendations to the city of Grand Junction and the and Mesa County Building Department um, to incentivize the type of all the different housings that we types of housing and level of housing from subsidized to attainable market rate housing. Um, we need our rental market is in short supply, but we have as a result of that work, we are seeing improvements. So, for example, this time last year, there were only, I think, 60 permits uh, for new housing coming on. And this year, that at this time, a year later, it's 600 permanent units to be built in the next year. So we're tackling it. Um, I think that housing prices will continue to increase, but the like the average house price, but I do think we're going to have a wide selection, a wider selection than we have today. 
and our average wage earners will be able to live in market rate attainable housing. I'm curious, you say that that is the main way that you know that there are people moving here who are working remotely, is that there is pressure on the housing market. At the same time, you are encouraging remote workers to relocate to Grand Junction. Grand Junction even created a remote worker plan. With that pressure being the main indicator that they are there, why encourage folks to move? What's the benefit for Grand Junction's economy? So it's to diversify the economy. And so, um, you know, Q3 of 2019 is the first time in Grand Junction's history where uh, we had overall job growth and wage growth, but oil and gas jobs declined. And that has never happened in Grand Junction's history. And what was most interesting is people that were laid off in the energy industry were able to find other jobs um, within the community and not leave. Where in the past, when we were in a bus cycle, they would leave. We are feeling more diversified than ever. Uh, but historically, there are certain positions that have been very hard to recruit into the area. And the remote workers are bringing a lot of that skill set. They're highly skilled people that are moving here. And so should their jobs ever go back into an office somewhere else, we don't want to lose those people. We want to be able to easily plug them into our business community and keep that talent pool here. Um, And so that's why we created the Welcome Wagon, which is our remote worker program. Let's talk about the other side of this, because it's not just remote workers moving. It's also that their businesses starting in town or moving to town. Tell me about what's going on with that. So, you know, we were still, we are still recovering from the 2008 recession. And in 15 is when we really sat down. We realized Denver's exploding and we were still declining. And so we sat down as a community and leadership sat down and really looked at how do we improve our community um, to be an attractive place to live. And so at that time, we began a number of, we began to reinvest in the community. So we passed six tax increases in five years to put money back into public safety, our schools, We've developed our Riverfront Park. It's a $14 million project that the city took on. And what happened is we began, we became a nicer place to live. We People felt safer. People saw the improvement in our schools. Um, and at a time when Denver was, Denver specifically was becoming more and more expensive and there's a lot of congestion, I think people that could leave were looking for a different type of lifestyle. Do you have a way of quantifying or describing the business growth that you've seen in the last year and a half during the pandemic? Well, it's easy to quantify because you can look at um, sales tax revenues have continued to climb. Uh, Our airport was the first after COVID to recover. And in fact, we are now, our employments every day are beating 2019 numbers. Our lodging tax today are beating 2019 numbers. Um, And 2019 is kind of, that was a really, really good year for Mesa County. And so we always use that as uh, especially tw- given what happened in 2020. But yes, I think when you look at job growth, unemployment, which is an, it's a, unemployment, in my opinion, is not an accurate representation today of our economy, but we have job growth numbers, wage growth numbers, um, number of kids on free or reduced lunch. So if you just look at our trends, it's all continues to be positive and we are now outperforming 2019. We've talked a lot about growth in business. Obviously, the pandemic was devastating to a lot of people financially. In your area, who was hurt the most? So hospitality, without a doubt, was hurt the most. Um, however, it wasn't, again, we we were so lucky. And part of the reason was we created the five-star program. So we never fully shut down our businesses. We never went below 50% capacity in our restaurants. Um, and that kept things chugging along. We also stayed in school. So we had in-person learning all last year, uh, which allowed people to go to work and keep their jobs. And so we managed to um, get by with in a much better way than other communities because kids can go to school, parents can go to work. 
businesses were able to stay open. So we had very little business businesses actually closed permanently, very few. Um, but without a doubt, hospitality suffered the most. I wonder what the big hurdles you see are for businesses relocating in the area of services that they are not going to get that would be available in a major city. Pre-COVID, I would have said funding. It's hard to find funding out in the more rural communities. That's really changed with COVID um, because there's a lot of funding available. I I think it has more to do with, um, you know, it's all about scale. And so, so much of economic development and business services and funding are geared towards communities with really, I mean, huge populations. Um, Customer base, that's another one, depending on what the product is that they are selling or serving. Um, You have a small, you know, at some point you've just maxed out the community you live in. There's no one else to sell to or to provide your services to. Um, That's why we also like tech, because normally they're selling a service or a product beyond our local community. But I think it's just about scale. Um, And that that is always a challenge for rural communities. Let's talk for a moment about a different issue that's had a lot of impact lately. The frequent closures this summer of I-70 through Glenwood Springs. Yep. When that road closes, what are the specific impacts on businesses in Grand Junction? So it just, everything stops. So we've had, you know, our tourism industry bounce back and it's a vital industry to our economy. And so when you have um, 100% of when all of our hotels are booked for a weekend and then the, the, when I-70 closes, suddenly they, we lose half of those reservations. That's super impactful. Um, all of our tourism-based businesses, our wineries, even the biking. I mean, you just see if, if people are coming, especially from Denver, it's our largest tourism draw, um, and they're not sure if they're going to make it or it's gonna, they know it's going to take them six to eight hours, they'll go somewhere else. They're not going to come here if, it, if, if it's going to be. Um, and I don't blame them. But that we feel that it's devastating. Uh, and then also freight. It's been a huge, um, the cost of freight right now and not know, and the unpredictability of, especially for our manufacturers, are they going to get their product or not? And there's no way to, there's no way to tell. Um, so that, and then our groceries, I mean, it's weird. It's sort of like COVID stuff. You go into the grocery store and there'll be like entire sections that just don't have anything or they won't get lettuce one day. I remember I talked to the beer distributor and he was panicked. We were going to run out of beer. (laughs) And so I just, there's just so many things that can't get here. And it is um, right now, it's just the unpredictability. And I, it's not this specific closure and it's not the August closure last year when it was closed for 14 days. It is the inconsistency of I-70. Like it is, whether it's weather or avalanche mitigation or an accident, we just have had the last five years have seen a huge increase in closures and it's just such, it makes it so unpredictable for our economy, which is why we would really like to see a um, improved second route, whether it's Cottonwood Pass. I mean, there's a number, there's a lot of discussions going on, but we really need um, an improved alternate lo- alternate route uh, for when I-70 closes because it will continue to close. And that kind of long-term solution is going to take a while. Are there short-term answers you're looking for? So I would argue it shouldn't take a while. I think that it's there's only a certain number of of alternate locations that can be paved. I think that the state should get really, really involved and CDOT should make it happen. I, I think that um, we can get caught up in the bureaucracy of studies and trying to get communities on board and however it works. But I think every time they do that, it is 
further holding our rural communities back. I mean, that is the pipeline to all of Western Colorado. You know, recently there's been a number of companies in Western Colorado that have moved distribution to Salt Lake City because of the huge cost of freight. They're not moving distribution to Denver. They're moving it out of state. And so in my mind, that is a wake up call to the state that we really need to make Western Colorado a central distributing location that involves rail, it involves alternate locations or alternate routes on I-70. I mean, it's a big, it's much bigger than what we in Mesa County can handle. We need the state's help to really um, look at all the routes, look at all of the, the, look at a foreign trade zone, look at how to move more um, trucks off of the road and onto rail. Um, but it, it's a big lift, but it, it in my mind, sh- it, the, it, the answers are pretty obvious. It just needs to be funded and it needs to be done. You are looking at getting a new railroad terminal in Grand Junction, potentially using federal stimulus money. You've hinted at it. Why is that so important? For that very reason. So one, so that we can bring a lot of product in by rail. Currently, 98% of our freight comes in by truck, 2% on the rail. Um, And meanwhile, we have two class one rail carriers coming through Grand Junction. We do have a rail facility. Currently, it only takes rail cars. It's a different thing than bringing shipping containers it would lower the costs for people bringing our manufacturers that bring a lot of product in. Uh, but second, it would take a lot of trucks off the road. So from a congestion standpoint, and you know, we all know what a disaster bail pass can be. Um, it would just really alleviate a lot of that congestion. We would take thousands of trucks off the road if we could bring shipping containers into Grand Junction. Let's talk about another possible development. There was a lot of excitement in 2019 around President Trump's decision to move the Bureau of Land Management headquarters to Grand Junction. But when the agency moved more than 300 positions out of D.C., the vast majority of those people quit. Fewer than 10 accepted transfers to Grand Junction. Interior Secretary Deb Holland will decide soon whether to move the headquarters back to Washington. If that goes away at this point, does it really make a difference? It does make a difference. Uh, We have loved being the home of the headquarters of the BLM. Our economy depends on our public lands, and um, we were thrilled to get the BLM headquarters here. It's so important to our economy. We feel we're the gateway to the West. You know, 99% of public lands are West of the Continental Divide. Um, And so we we are really hopeful that we'll keep some portion of that headquarters here. What do you think will happen? Uh, my my prediction, put it on like uh, let's put it in stone here. My prediction is we'll keep some portion of a headquarters, and I don't I don't believe we'll. Pro- I mean, honestly, I think they'll probably move the headquarters back to D.C. I think they will leave something here. I do believe that they recognize that there is value in understanding how policy um, decisions affect economies. Whether that changes their decisions or not, I don't, that doesn't, that's not the point. The point is that they understand what the repercussions are of decisions and make them accordingly. So I think there's value in um, some portion staying here to help develop policy. Robin, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Avery. Robin Brown was executive director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership until last Friday. She left for a new job at Colorado Mesa University. A lot of people in Mesa County and other parts of the state are holding their breath right now. The county of about 150,000 people has recorded more than 19,000 cases of COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Earlier this year, it reported the state's first cases of the highly contagious Delta variant. Cases rose. Things looked reasonably good later in the summer as the numbers fell. But in early August, K-12 schools reopened. Cases began to climb again, quickly. 
Last week, 11,000 college students returned to Colorado Mesa University near downtown Grand Junction. We stopped by Mesa's football practice Sunday night. It was postponed a few hours because temperatures were in the 90s. Several players recently got COVID-19 vaccines. They took time out of their warm-up to tell us about the conversations with CMU faculty that convinced them that the shot was safe and worth it. Here's wide receiver KJ Sapp. I kind of was just indifferent. I didn't know much about it. Um, I wasn't going to get it out of random, you know, curiosity. Um, but I also wasn't really against it either. You know, I wasn't, I wouldn't consider myself anti-vax, but I was just kind of see how it was going to go, how all the vaccinations would go, go and see uh, if it's something that I needed to do or not. And his teammate, defensive end Torin Calhoun. Uh, me, I was not indifferent. I was not going to get the vaccine at all, unless I absolutely had to. Uh, I was just kind of leery about it. I felt like it came out a little bit fast, and uh, I felt like everybody was doing it at once. Uh, yeah, I just, I wasn't going to get it. The university's new president, John Marshall, hears doubts like that all the time. About 50 percent of Mesa County's eligible residents have received at least one shot. And young people seem particularly unwilling. Only about a third of the 20 to 29-year-olds in the county are at least partially vaccinated. Marshall is relying on persuasion, not a mandate, to convince Mesa students. Rather than sitting down and saying, you shall get this shot, we sat down and said, what are your questions? What are your concerns? What is it about this vaccine that is unclear? Or what about the science? Or what about cultural, historical? What is it? that would allow you to come to some peace about this conversation. And they just engaged in a thoughtful conversation and asked the tough question. Well, after that was done, they went out and got vaccines. And the reason that happened is not because we told them they had to. It was because they were given the, the latitude and the grace to be able to work through that at their own pace and ask their questions and really navigate it for themselves. That's where we think the future lies in this conversation. Altogether, 26 Mesa players, including Calhoun and Sapp, got vaccinated after that meeting. Last year, Marshall led CMU's COVID response. He was vice president of the university then. Their virus protection and detection strategy allowed students to attend classes in person. It got national recognition. This year, there will be one key difference. Students can attend class without masks. We'll hear more about what Mesa did last year and what they're doing now on an upcoming Colorado Matters. Stay tuned this week as we continue our road trip. Our next stop is Durango, where we'll hear about a historic apple orchard and about tensions over public lands in the Four Corners region. Then it's on to Alamosa, where members of the oldest church in the county are building an adobe labyrinth. Last week, my co-host Ryan Warner was in Colorado Springs, Rocky Ford, and Fort Morgan. You can find all those episodes at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters and everywhere that you get your podcasts. We'll be right back after the break to hear how Western Slope farmers and ranchers are dealing with the pandemic and climate disruptions. From our studio on Main Street in downtown Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters on the road again from CPR News and KRCC. A Palisade peach, unforgettably sweet and juicy, packs a lot of Colorado inside its fuzzy skin. In the late 19th century, as native people were forced from their ancestral homes, farmers started developing land in the shade of the cliffs at the eastern end of Grand Valley on the western slope. 
The soil was rich, but too dry for fruit trees. Then came John Harlow, who planted peach trees in 1882 with water diverted from the Colorado River. The town of Palisade grew too, and just a few decades later, it was shipping more than 25,000 pounds of peaches across the region every day. The winter of 1962 killed most of the existing fruit trees, and the winter of 89 also did damage, but growers have persevered, and today, Colorado is the seventh largest peach-producing state. Celebrated for more than 100 years with what's now known as the Palisade Peach Festival, where you can take in a parade, present yourself to the peach queen and her court, and of course, eat a peach. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters on the road again in Grand Junction from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Farmers and ranchers are navigating a new world. Between the effects of the pandemic and persistent drought, they're dealing with constant uncertainty. CPR's Stina Sieg is based on the western slope where many folks are making their living off the land. She hopped in a car to find their stories. I didn't go alone. My friend, farmer Harrison Topp, first had the idea. Hey, we should do like a a road trip to go around and see how restaurants and food systems are recovering after the pandemic. It'd be kind of an interesting travelogue. An agriculture and restaurant road trip through western Colorado. Harrison owns Top Fruits, is the membership director for Rocky Mountain Farmers Union and my co-pilot. He's about to show me his world. I pick him up at his farm in Hotchkiss and we head south for hours. The first stop, family-run James Ranch outside of Durango. Hey, Cal. You see their heads all come up? Dan James is about to open up some fresh pasture for his beautiful bovines, as he calls them. Hey, Cal. Here we go. They surround us, brown and red with splashes of white, ears that stick out like side-view mirrors. They calmly chomp on bright green grass, picturesque mountains behind them. COVID didn't really impact us in a negative way. Um, the cows don't know about it. The cows can't get it. So they've just kept churning out milk to make James Ranch artisan cheese. I'd say the biggest impact has been just the increase in business. James says there's such a large demand for his cheese on the ranch that you can only get it here either at the store or the grill, where we're having lunch today. Is there oh, an extra you. forks? Yes, there's forks floating. There's extra down here. Burgers and salad, produced right on the ranch that's been in the family for three generations. Four of the five James siblings live and work here. Each has his or her own business on these 400 acres, including this grill. And the pandemic has helped them all. Well, people are starting to ask the really good question of where does my food come from? Mm-hmm. Julie James Ott, Dan's sister, runs the ranch's market, which has been going gangbusters. They get a lot of tourists wooed by the quaint setting, but she says they see a lot of locals, too. Yeah, it's super exciting to see people come in and shop for their week. And it's just piles of vegetables and cheese and beef, and it's just so wonderful. From grazing to produce growing, James Ranch is all about regenerative agriculture practices that help rebuild soil, among other benefits. Julie's husband, John Ott, says this is about looking toward the future. You know, the whole climate change thing is something we're all faced with and building resilience in your farm so that when you do have big storms or, you know, the water quality does get worse or all those things, we need to build that resilience into the land so that when 
things change, we we can adapt. Adapting to warming temperatures is on the mind of pretty much everyone we speak to on this trip, even if very few use the term climate change. The drought, parching Colorado and the western U.S., hangs over most conversations. The next morning at Zach's Barbecue in Hotchkiss, Jason Reck, a beef producer from Crawford, says the drought's fallout is pretty stark. It's kind of like, well, maybe we're just in the wrong business. And unfortunately, we're just in the wrong time. For Rick, that's meant leasing land all over Delta County, not over grazing, moving his cows. From one pasture to the next, to the next, to the next. Like at James Ranch, he's using new ranching techniques. Even simply changing grasses can make a world of difference, Rick says. And he sees people all over the area trying innovative methods. It is impressive how, what lengths people will go to to try and do the right thing by the land. And it continues to just blow the doors off of what you know, people thought was social norms. And now it's really exceptional what it does for us. Especially when demand is soaring for locally raised grass-fed beef, beef he sells direct to consumers. Our breakfasts arrive on giant steaming plates. Whoa, yes, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much. and I'll be right back with the biscuits and gravy. I get a chicken fried steak drenched in speckled gravy, a specialty here, says owner David Price. While restaurants all over took a hit in 2020, he says his business hardly dipped. I mean, we don't, we don't see what the rest of the world sees. Price says he got so much community support. One day during the statewide shutdown, he sold $6,000 worth of food, pretty close to normal, while doing takeout from a tent. My buddy Harrison Top cuts in. He was wearing scantily clad clothing. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd probably drive people away. <laughs> Top and I get back on the road and later arrive in Olathe for lunch. <laughs> Some local teachers are getting tacos and sodas from a shiny little truck. But most of the crowd are farm workers. Manuel Saldana, here from Mexico, says he's mostly optimistic about agriculture right now, except when it comes to the area's low vaccination rate. A lot of people don't have the shock, don't believe in the the pandemic. And Saldana means the community at large, not his crew, where all the workers on visas like him are vaccinated. He says that the virus does surge again. We have uh, less opportunities for jobs, uh, less possible for work. Everything is bad. Another worry farm workers talk about here is a new Colorado labor law. It's meant to improve working conditions, and it could also require employers to pay them time and a half for overtime. Celso Roque, who's lived here for years, says workers are afraid they'll lose hours. We feel kind of a, what is going to happen. And Roque worries how the law could impact local farms. What about if they decide to close? And then we, we don't have any more job? That is a possibility, says one farmer also eating tacos here. If the time and a half rule really does go into effect, he says it just won't be feasible to compete with other states that don't have these strict rules. We head to the Route County Fair in Hayden, a little town between Craig and Steamboat Springs. My traveling buddy Harrison Top is serving up ice cream at the Future Farmers of America dinner. 
<laughs> what would you like? You like vanilla? What do you say, Casting? Would you like toppings, guys? Every kid I speak to believes in the future of agriculture here. 15-year-old Carmen Anarella says it even draws tourists who want to be surrounded by the farming and ranching mystique. They still want to see the horses, you know, like, and at the Winter Carnival we'll see, like, horses dragging the skiers and stuff. So people really come here for that Western heritage, so. Carmen wants to help preserve it and make a career in agriculture advocacy. You know, agriculture plays a huge role in bringing people in here. So I think it's an incredible industry and it's very important in our state. But that does not change how difficult it can be to make a living. For every agriculture success story in Colorado, there are many tough ones. Shiloh Whaley, a local rancher who works with Carmen and other FFA kids, says the drought has made it hard for ranchers to get feed and water for their cows. So when you can't feed and water them, then you have to sell your numbers. And that, for some people, will be everything. Whaley and her husband have had to keep paring down their herd. We cut in half last fall, then we cut in half again this spring, and we'll probably cut in half again this fall. So it's hard. She lets herself cry briefly. You work hard for it to go away, but it's good. We'll figure it out. Rolling with the slams, as she calls it, just like farmers and ranchers did in the Dust Bowl and in World War II. The FFA kids give her hope, she says, as do her four children, seventh-generation ranchers. They definitely have a rough road ahead, but I'm excited because they got a lot of fight and they're pretty stubborn, so... Whaley thinks they'll find new ways to make this life work. After all, she says, people will still need to eat, whatever the future holds. At the Route County Fairgrounds, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Mesa County has been in the national news for the past few weeks because of the alleged actions of its county clerk. Tina Peters is under a criminal investigation looking into whether she gave an unauthorized person access to her office's secure voting technology, resulting in sensitive information being released by people who believe the last election was rigged. CPR's Benta Berkland has been following this. Hi, Benta. Hi, Avery. So where do things stand right now? There have been a a lot of moving pieces to this. One big thing is how it will impact Mesa County's upcoming local election in November. The state said Mesa County could not use the Dominion voting machines that were compromised, and the state stripped the clerk, Tina Peters, of her ability to oversee the election. The county has agreed to a new contract with Dominion to get replacement machines, and we learned today that former Republican Secretary of State Wayne Williams has been appointed to take on the responsibility of overseeing Mesa County's elections this fall. And what about the investigations? What do we know about what the investigators think happened? The district attorney in Mesa County and the FBI are both involved, as is the Secretary of State's office. The allegations are that Tina Peters let an unauthorized person into a secure area to take pictures of hardware and passwords before and after an annual system upgrade and allowed that person to watch the upgrade. 
the district attorney said there's an effort to interview everyone involved, but he couldn't comment on the status of the investigation or whether they've been able to talk to the people they want. Connect the dots for us, Benta. Why would someone want to make these copies of Dominion software? What do they think that they're going to show? The clerk, Tina Peters, has said she thinks something didn't seem right about the 2020 election. And she said the public wants answers and she wants to find those answers. She said it's a pledge she's made to the citizens of Mesa County and all over Colorado. And so it appears she's trying to uncover fraud. There isn't evidence of widespread election fraud. I understand Peters has been out of state and not responding to media since this started. Have we heard anything from her? Well, she did appear at a cyber symposium hosted by MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell earlier this month. And Lindell has been a proponent of election fraud conspiracies, and he has since told Vice News that he's providing a safe place for Peters to stay because she fears for her safety. This extended absence does have real implications for business in Mesa County. Even though Peters is not running elections right now, the clerk still has other duties she'd normally be doing. So what's been the reaction to all this from the people in Mesa County? Some people are waiting to see what happens with these investigations. Others want Peters recalled or voted out of office. At a recent meeting, Mesa County Commissioner Scott McInnes, who, like Peters, is a Republican, said she needs to get back to her job. He said the commissioners have not heard from her directly since this whole thing happened. She's in hiding by her own admission. We want to make sure we take the threats against her very, very seriously. We want to make sure she's protected. But she needs to come back to work. And others support Peters. A few hundred people held a rally to back her. One of the attendees was Sheila Lu- Shelley Lucas, and she lives in Mesa County. And she said she's glad Peters helped leak out information about the Dominion machines. I feel that there was definitely election fraud. And um, we need to get to the bottom of it. It's been in every county, every state, and I want to know about it. I think that we should have a fair election, and, and our voices matter. We want to reiterate that there is no evidence of election fraud and that Colorado has a paper trail of all ballots and does an audit of the results to make sure those paper ballots match the tally of the electronic voting machines. That's right. In fact, Colorado has long been held up nationally as having this gold standard of elections because of these audits and paper trail. And it's really seen as this model for how to run secure, transparent elections. I talked about this whole situation with Matt Masterson. He worked at the Department of Home Security at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And he's now at Stanford University. He's worked with elected officials from across the country. And he said what happened in Mesa County is called an insider threat. And he described it as stunning. Because it is so completely outside the norm. Democrats and Republicans across the United States administer elections in a professional way across 8,800 jurisdictions because they know that their job is to be protectors of democracy, of, of our system, of our elections. And this is the first time in my memory that I can recall an election official brazenly shirking that duty in pursuit of their own benefit. To be clear, Peters hasn't been charged with any crime, but is Masterson worried that the things she's accused of could happen in other places too? 
He is. Masterson said, what happens to Peters and other firms and people pushing election conspiracy theories will in part determine how much more of this we continue to see as a country. We've seen private companies, we've seen politicians raise millions of dollars off of this. And so if there is an accountability and consequences, this grift will continue. You know, they're essentially selling out democracy in pursuit of these gains. Benta, thank you for updating us on the investigation. You're welcome. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, you're with CPR News. When we were in Grand Junction in 2019, we met this guy. What's going on, everybody? I'm Cousin Curtis. This is the first recording coming from inside the van. I'm currently parked outside of Lizardhead Trailhead. It's absolutely beautiful here, just outside of Telluride, Colorado. And this song is called It's About Time. Curtis O'Rourke Stedman, AKA Cousin Curtis, performing here in a van he retrofitted as a studio. At the time, he was living in the small town of Placerville outside Telluride. Last year, he moved to Montrose, and we just had to check in on him now that we're back on the Western Slope to see how he's fared through the pandemic. Turns out, he's still got the old studio van, although he didn't drive it to a recent gig in Alaska, his old stomping grounds. Oh, yeah, no, I flew. I would love to make a drive, but I think if I drove the van to Alaska, at some point, it would be like a cartoon. It'd just be me and the steering wheel, and the wheels would fall off the side, the doors and the windows would be gone, and the van would be like... (laughs) and the tongue would roll out like a cartoon. That's exactly what would happen. Oh my God. Up on the Mesa, it's easy to space out. It's easy to quit. I feel like a horse has been rolled hard and put away wet. That's no excuse I know for drinking my sorrows while you're sleeping in bed. The pandemic was a gut punch to Cousin Curtis. His artist's residency at Telluride Ski Resort evaporated, and what was set to be his busiest summer tour in 2020, completely canceled. It didn't take long, though, for Curtis to find a way to keep up his performance chops and pay the bills. So I had people reaching out that I'd never heard from before. And they were like, hey, we saw you online or saw you on YouTube or somebody told us about you. Are you interested at all? And do you feel comfortable coming over to our place? Because this would have been like in the height of it all. (laughs) I think one of the most um, random was me playing for three people. That was it. Totally acoustic in a hidden little spot of Town Park in Telluride, Colorado, where I just walked up. It was a total surprise. This guy hit me up and he surprised he, his girlfriend and her friend. They ate dinner picnic style. And I just stood 12 feet away and played music for him while they ate. Like it was wonderful. (laughs) 
There were virtual shows, too, which aren't his cup of tea. But some fans at a recent in-person gig helped change his perspective. I played a show in Denver at the Monkey Barrel. Like, the place was packed. I was blown away. And these folks came up to me and they said, we tuned in for every single Facebook Live show. You are what got us through COVID quarantine. Well, I'm about to cry, um, but I have to play now. I was like, that is... That was so humbling and honoring. I had just, I don't know, it was inexplicable. The feelings that were rushing through that night, hearing something like that, where it's like, in my mind, a lot of those nights playing music was a huge hassle. Either my internet would go out. um, I forgot to hit one button so nobody could hear me for the first five minutes. Like, Like it was a headache most of those times. But then to hear somebody say, that they didn't care and it's what got them through and it was comic relief and it was what it was. I mean, it makes me want to do it again. Like every once in a while, like one, once a month, do a Facebook live show for everybody who's not able to see a show or who can't for whatever reason. Came to this afternoon, I was hanging upside down. My race car flipped over, I'm smelling fumes all around. Next thing I see is a spark that did ignite. My hair's on fire, but I can say never had a bad day in my life. No, no, never had a bad day in my life. Travel the word on something fast on someone else's dime. No, no, never had a bad day in my life. I burn the candle at both ends, but it feels mighty nice. Cousin Curtis says the last year and a half made him a better musician. Man, honestly, this is the most I have ever practiced guitar in my life. Like, I've been playing guitar for 15, 16 years now. And I've never really sat down and like scheduled time to like, I'm going to clock in and clock out and I'm going to practice the pentatonic scale. Oddly, the isolation has also made him more collaborative. Having done things solo for so long, opening up and letting people critique musically and lyrically original material, that is, that's never been my jam. I've always had struggled with that. And now I'm at the point of like, whatever, I'll take all the help I can get and let's see what we create. And it's been fun. As much as lockdown meant developing new muscles, Cousin Curtis also returned to something he knew well, the classroom. He'd been a middle school language arts teacher back in Alaska. So for some extra income, he put his name on the substitute list in Montrose. Because um, the substitute teacher pool is usually pretty small in general, but for the most part, they're retired teachers. And not a lot of retired teachers, you know, in that age and demographic were super stoked about getting into a building even when it was like smaller cohorts of kids. And I was like, well, I'm young and healthy and I don't mind wearing a mask if that's what needs to happen. And so I uh, started substitute teaching at uh, a couple of different elementary schools and middle schools in Montrose. So I got my license to do that. And yeah, that was the side hustle for a little while. It was cool to meet a lot of the teachers and staff and you know, camaraderie for former and, and fellow educators. All right. Here we go. This one's for you. All right. I thought he was going to count it. This week, our soundtrack is Cousin Curtis's rendition of Willie Nelson's On the Road Again. Last week, Pueblo's Inea Lujan scored the show. Curtis says the song takes him back to his early days touring in that old van. Every morning when we hit the road, we would play On the Road Again. And it was just, you know, Kelly, myself, the dogs, and our life in a box behind us. That was the opening song of every single day. So we'd get our coffee once we were on the road for good. We were staring down the barrel of, you know, another eight-hour drive to get to the next venue, et cetera, et cetera. We'd start it off with On the Road Again. 
it's wonderful and full circle. And uh, if you're asking what's going to be going through my mind, it's going to be some fond memories and some hard memories from 2015 up to today. Uh, from the moment I started playing music full time until where I'm at right now um, is literally on the road again. On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. Life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again. Going places that I've never been. Singing things that I may never see again. I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again, like a band of gypsies, we go down the highway. We're the best of friends, insisting that the world keep turning our way. In our way, is on the road again. I just can't wait to get back on the road again. Life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. Cousin Curtis of Montrose. He's currently on the road himself, but will be back in Colorado for a string of shows across the Western Slope in September. Hi, I'm Macy Smith. I'm 12 years old and I raise goats in Steamboat Springs. And this is Colorado Matters on the Road. The team guiding our journey is... Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lowe, with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters on the Road Again in Grand Junction. We'll be in the Four Corners on Wednesday. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Love I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. I can't wait to get on the road again. And I can't wait to get on the road again.